Welcome to Query, where we provide simple answers to complex tech questions. My name is Serenity Caldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, My voice is mostly recovered. (laughs) That's good. We're in that weird time period right before WWDC. So, like, Google and Microsoft have had their big developer conferences they happen the beginning of may so i covered all that stuff for work and now it's like it's a quiet period and then we're all going to be in san jose together in just a couple of weeks yes together in person uh, and yeah it's gonna be awesome uh and you are also taking part of the relay fm live show uh, yeah. that will be released in the connected feed that week so the first half of that show is going to be sort of a panel discussion uh you've graciously accepted an invitation to that so thank you for joining us on stage and uh, so we'll be we'll be together a couple times uh, during that week on shows. It'll be fun. I know it's uh, you won't be able to get rid of me. It'll just be uh, <laughs> all kinds of podcast insanity. Just just I'm gonna open the door to the Airbnb and you'll be there. I'll be like, record. hi, Stephen. Can I can I work in your Airbnb in between run, rushing to layers for snacks? <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about computers. So, yeah. So that's what's yeah. coming up. Uh, so it's going to be uh, a, a busy couple of weeks, but um, it's exciting. But before all of that. We have a bunch of questions and stuff to to talk through, and we're going to start with a, a question from uh, AJ, uh, who writes, I'm cleaning up my photos library, uh, trying to clean up some duplicates. I've deleted a large amount of the duplicate images, but the size of my local library hasn't shrunk, even though I've deleted photos in the recently deleted folder. So photos has like that over on the left-hand side. There's a recently deleted thing. Uh, I've gotten rid of all that. What do I need to do to recalculate the library size? So, Serenity, what can AJ do? Awesome. Well, there are a couple things. I think, it, AJ, it depends on how your library is set up. Uh, so I think the biggest question to start off with is, are you using iCloud Photo Library or not? Uh, because if you are, um, then, and if you have optimized storage checked, which uh, a lot of us who are on laptops do, um, you can be cleaning up a whole ton of photos, um, getting rid of screenshots, getting rid of duplicates, things like that. Uh, but it's not going to change the overall size of your library all of that much because the way that optimized storage works in iCloud Photo Library is it looks at your available hard drive space and says, okay, this person has, you know, 30 gigs free, I'm going to devote 35%, 40% of that to photo storage. Um, And then the more gigabytes you get free, chances are the larger your library will will get in proportion to the free gigabytes you have. Uh, So you could be, you know, deleting a whole bunch of things. But as long as there's still uh, as there are still things to pull down from iCloud, uh, your library might continue to basically keep pace with the amount of free space on your disk. Um, so that's that's one option that I've seen happen uh, fairly option fairly fairly option fairly often. Um, the other thing that you can always do um, is, of course, the old school rebuild your library, um, which essentially just means um, opening it in a in a special way once you've quit it. Uh, so what you would end up doing is quitting photos. Um, if you really want to take the extra step, I would suggest also restarting your computer after you've quit photos. Um, once your computer has restarted, then you're going to hold down the option key 
and click photos um, and it's going to ask you to choose your library site or your specific library when you pick that library it will go through the steps um, of automatically rebuilding it um, which is essentially just doing a, a double check against the against what it is it's not it's when I it always struck me as funny people saying rebuild your library because it's not you know it's not taking it apart piece by piece protomolecule <laughs> style and be like well, how does this work and then snapping it together uh it's really just kind of cleaning things up it's almost like uh repairing old school repairing permissions on a mac yeah uh so yeah those are those are kind of my my two hot tips for doing that um if it's if you're still having issues at that point, um, I would definitely try and do a. F- and you haven't tried restarting your Mac, I would definitely try a full restart. Um, also, check your trash. Um, I think Apple has fixed it to the point where photos, when you delete recently deleted, it goes straight to straight off of the disk. But there's still a small chance that you might end up putting your uh, put the recently deleted might go into the trash. So just to, to be safe, you can always clear your trash. It's funny how many questions we get about photos. You know, when we started the show a year ago, <laughs> I would not have guessed that. And I think it's because it is sort of weird, especially if you have iCloud Photo Library, like you said. There's no real control for me to say, hey, I want to limit you to 15 gigs. And you can't yeah. go past that. Now, there are some ways to do that. You can make like a sparse disk image and stick your library on there. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. That's complicated, but doable. But because it's designed of like, I'm just going to take up space on your drive until there's, you know, we hit some sort of magic percentage. It's a little frustrating if you're trying to, you know, actively clear off space and photos is kind of coming in behind you, eating that space up as it goes. So it's uh, it can be a little frustrating, but... You know, I, for one, and we've talked about this a bunch, I actually really like iCloud Photo Library. And I, I have it, you know, everything local on my iMac Pro and on my MacBook Pro just syncing, you know, just with whatever iCloud deems appropriate. And it works pretty well, but there are times I wish that I could have a little more, a little more control. Yeah, I I agree as well. And, you know, I spent a, I'm actually redoing our entire iCloud photo library guide for iMore right now. So I've spent a lot of time with photos and iCloud photo library in the last oh, week and a half. Uh, and I, I keep coming back to the fact that it is really a, a fantastic solution for people who want to back up their photos easily and simply and want to have them on all their devices. But where it gets tricky is in space recognition where, you know, uh, I, I have a 1.5 terabyte iCloud photo library. Like I have, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of videos in, in my photo library. And, uh, what I would love to do honestly is be able to more like fine tune that more and say, Oh, I don't want these videos on my, uh, on my Mac. I don't want these video. Like I'll take the videos all on my iPhone, but I don't want any of them on my Mac download my photos instead, but keep the videos so that I can edit with them, right. That I can use that footage. Uh, and those fine tune controls really don't exist as you said. So that's kind of something I'm, I'm off chance hoping for for WWDC is that we we get a little a little bit more fine-tuned control from from photos in iCloud photo library it would be cool but because we don't um there's I'm, I I snuck in a double question on this topic I'm breaking the rules a little bit uh because my dad recently asked me he's like oh well you know my photos library is taking up all of this space um 
and because of iCloud Photo Library, but I still want to back it up and I still want to, you know, and I should take a second to say, uh, yes, iCloud Photo Library is a type of backup because you are backing it up to the cloud, which is awesome. But if you do not have a redundant backup, aka a local backup on your hard drive or on an external drive uh, or add a different backup service, then your photos are not truly backed up because if they're only in one place, then they're not backed up, even if that place is a backup service. Uh, so, uh, so going back to my dad, he was asking about how photos could work from an external drive with iCloud Photo Library still enabled. Uh, so I, I kind of snuck that in. Uh, sorry, Stephen. Double topic. <laughs> I, no. no, it's, a, good, it's no. a really good question and definitely related. Yeah. So um, the the I actually I dove into this uh, and I wrote an article for I'm more about it because I thought it was really interesting. How do you use your photos library on an external drive? And it turns out it's actually pretty, pretty simple. Um, there are some like pros and cons to it, which I'll go over really quickly. Uh, you know, you probably should use an external drive again if you want to back it up and you have no other backup aside from the photos that you store on iCloud. Like, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, in addition, uh, if your library isn't huge, but you want to save space on your Mac for other files, um, if you're in, you know, if you're in AJ's situation and you're like, well, you know, I want to have space on my my drive for, for more photos uh, or for not even photos, for different files, um, that's a really awesome awesome option. Also, um, I recommend an external drive for people who frequently swap computers, uh, but they want to work on their images from any Mac, uh, which is really awesome. Um, and then lastly, if you have a gigantic photos library, uh, AKA like mine, I have one terabyte, uh, you probably want to store it somewhere that's not your Mac because otherwise you're just taking up uh, a I don't know how many people have Macs with one terabyte of storage, uh, but you'll basically take it all up. Uh, or if you have an iMac Pro with more than that, uh, you've got, you know, you're still taking up the majority of your storage with a with a photo library. Uh, the downsides, the reasons why it's probably still okay to keep, uh, keep this on your Mac. And I should say, when I say your photos library, I'm talking about your full unadulterated photos library when connected to iCloud. So your photos library, and then you have the download originals to this Mac button checked, right. uh, not optimized storage. Uh, so you have all of that set up. Um, why you might not want to use an external drive includes things like you have a big library and you, or you don't have a big library uh, and you don't necessarily need to move it off your Mac. If your library is only like 10 gigs and you have a 400, you know, 500 gig computer, it's probably okay. Uh, also, if you have an external drive that's kind of big and bulky and you don't have, you have a portable computer, um, then it means that you can only look at your photo library when you're kind of sitting at your desk, which is a problem. Um, also, if you lose use a laptop frequently and you do have a portable drive, but it's not an SSD, um, I generally, I, I, I'm very much a proponent for if you're going to be moving a drive around, especially if you're going to be carrying a drive around, like some photographers I know and videographers uh, on site, uh, don't don't get a don't do this unless you can afford an SSD over a disk based hard drive because I have 
I have broken, skipped, and otherwise made hard drives angry by carrying them around while uh, while working on my Mac. Even rugged ones that are supposedly built for that. Uh, and lastly, um, working externally can be slower than working directly on your Mac. Uh, so if you do a lot of photo editing um, and you can't afford a drive that's fast enough to uh, you know go over Thunderbolt three or USB C. Uh, then you might be in a bad position uh, where it just is going to be slower than working on your default drive. Uh, and those are those are kind of my like pros and cons. Uh, so now let's talk about the actual process of how to do it. Uh, so essentially what this comes down to, let's say we're moving our current photos library to an external drive. Um, you're essentially making a copy of your photos library when you transfer it from your Mac to your external drive. So you're going to plug in your external drive. You can move that library. It's going to be found in your home folder under pictures. And it's usually called photos library. Pretty self, pretty self-explanatory. Um, you'll be making a copy by dragging that, that file, which is really a bundle of photos over to a place on your external drive. Um, before you do that, you're going to go into photos uh, and just change a couple settings, uh, especially if you use iCloud Photo Library. You'll just go into the preferences menu of photos uh, and uncheck iCloud Photo Library. And when it asks you to remove pictures from your Mac, you can do that as well. Um, this is a this is a step primarily um, to do if you do, are you're currently using optimized storage on a laptop but you want to build a full photos library on the external drive, uh, you can, if you already have everything downloaded, it'll be really simple. You just uncheck the iCloud photo library and instead of pressing remove from Mac, you'll just press download originals and it should come like three or four extra photos should come, come down the pipe. And once all that's taken care of, you can quit photos, um, and drag that file over from your desktop to your external drive. Uh, and once it's on your external drive, then we use the same thing that I was talking about with AJ earlier, the option click, um, and that allows you to choose which library you, you're going to open. It's going to show you a little drop-down dialog box, um, and it'll probably only list the current library that's on your system. So instead, you're going to click on the button that says Use Other Library and go and find it from your external drive. And once you open it there, um, you'll have it open in Photos. Then you go back to Preferences, uh, and in the main Preferences screen, there's a button that says Use as System Library. Uh, when you click on that, that tells Mac OS that this is the system, this is the photos library that you absolutely want to use with your Mac. Um, and in addition to that, you can switch over to the iCloud thing, turn iCloud photo library back on, um, and roll with that. The reason, by the way, that we turn it off on the quote unquote old version of your library is because Mac OS currently only supports iCloud photo library syncing with one photo library. Yeah, so it's also it, that can make it difficult if you're trying to set up uh, multiple libraries for different product projects. Uh, but when it comes to setting up a single library on an external drive, it's just important to think about uh, in that you uh, you definitely want to make sure that your iCloud is syncing with the right library. Uh, Apple has done some some backup into this, so if you forget to uncheck that before you move your library over and then you open it up on the external, 
uh, and try and turn it onto your system library and try and turn iCloud Photo Library on, it'll actually pop up with an error and say, like, do you want to make this library your your system library and your iCloud library instead? Because you have a different library that's currently that. Um, and from this, you can also override it from that preferences screen, which is pretty great. Uh, once you've made it your system photo library and you've connected your new library to iCloud, um, you're golden as long as you, uh, until you need to like draw down all of those photos from iCloud. So if it's, if you have a lot of photos in iCloud that you still need downloaded, uh, you can just kind of leave your external drive plugged in, let it download them, let it wait. And once they're all downloaded, uh, then you can quit photos at any time and remove your drive. Uh, and then the last step is just getting rid of your own your old library. Uh, if you want, you can take a further step from here and actually alias. Um, this is an old school old school Mac trick. Uh, and Apple Photos doesn't really need it need it anymore, but I do it just for peace of mind um, and for to avoid corruption issues. Where uh, once you've deleted your old library. Uh, you can go ahead and make an alias, uh, which you can do by control clicking on uh, your photos library on the external drive and saying make alias. Um, and then that pops open basically a symbolic link to uh, to your photo library that looks like an app that just says photo library alias. You can drag that alias over to your pictures folder and then rename it just photos library. Uh, and essentially what that does is if for whatever reason photos loses its programming and is like, where's the photos library? I can't find the connection. Um, or for instance, if you accidentally forget to plug in your external drive, um, it will try and open that alias. And if your external drive is not plugged in, uh, it will essentially be like, can't find your photo library, uh, which is a good uh, a good alert for you to be like, oh, right, I need to plug it in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as opposed to if you don't have an alias there and you click on photos the normal way instead of option clicking, uh, if there's no library there whatsoever and you don't have your external drive plugged in, photos will just create a new blank library for you, which uh, I've had that happen a couple times and it definitely encourages like heart uh, heart attacks. Like you're like, oh, where are all of my photos? Before you realize, oh, my hard drive isn't plugged in and that's unfortunate. So yeah, the alias is just kind of like an extra bonus step you can do if you you prefer avoiding those kinds of heart attacks. And I'll add real briefly, anytime you're, you're doing anything like that where you're moving the photo library or turning iCloud on or off, especially with a big library, that takes some time because if you, time, you yeah. sort of re-enable the iCloud photo library uh, aspect of it, it basically crawls through the library and verifies that nothing has been changed. And if it has been changed, that it, it, everything is where it's supposed to be. And so that's kind of a deal where, you know, you may be leaving photos open on your laptop overnight, uh, just if it's if it's got to sit there and and get through everything. But, um, you know, I've done this moving between laptops or, you know, if I have a big project, I'll just get rid of my photo library entirely on the MacBook for a little while if I'm traveling or something. And it always does the right thing, but it can take a little bit of time. So don't be surprised if this isn't, uh, oh, I signed in and everything's there, like, it's got to pull all that data down. It's got to build all those thumbnails. You're going to hear the fan because it's going to work hard for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but, but it will It will eventually get through it, I promise. Yeah. And then you'll have uh, all of this amazing space on your hard drive that you won't know what to do with. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a pretty cool system. Um, like I said, I've had, I've had good luck with it. So, uh, so let's take our, uh, our first break. I want to tell you about our friends over at Pingdom. 
If your website was down right now, if visitors couldn't access your content, couldn't click that all-important buy now button, how would you know? Well, you wouldn't know until it's too late, until they close the tab, until they decide not to buy from you. And that's why you need Pingdom. They give you the peace of mind that you need. Pingdom will let you know the moment your website goes down in whatever way is best for you. So yesterday, our web host at Relay had a couple of issues. So the website was up and down for about uh, about half an hour or so. And I got push notifications and text messages. That's how I have mine set up. Uh, Pingdom letting me know, hey, the site's down. Hey, the site's back, back up. I knew before anyone told me on Twitter or anyone sent me an email. And that's the whole point. Um, because Pingdom is dedicated for making the web faster and more reliable. If you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website is a breeze. I didn't have to go in and configure a bunch of stuff. All I had to do was give Pingdom the URL, and they took care of the rest. And now they're using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to my site, checking its availability as often as every minute. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And when you do sign up, use the code QUERY at checkout to get a massive 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and RelayFM. All right. So we've got a question from Elliot for you. Um, They emailed in wanting to hear about your workflow for creating your YouTube videos. And actually, you know, I'm curious about this, too, because (laughs) you keep on you've been doing these amazing YouTube videos. I loved your uh, iPod mini video. I should think that was your most recent one. It is. Yeah. 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 It's. You, you just have this warmth and this bubbliness for the d- describing the history of this tech and also showing it off in beautiful painstaking detail so uh so yeah <laughs> let's let's hear more about this you can't see me because this is radio but i'm perching my one hand up like a willy oh wonka boy. style and be like please tell <laughs> without the sarcasm uh, yeah so what most people mean when they ask this is what gear do you use and so I'll, i will start with that um, but I will say that what I use is ridiculous and expensive. And all you need to start is your phone in your pocket. Like, don't feel like because I use something or because, you know, someone who like really knows what they're doing uses something uh, that you've got to go out and, and buy that equipment. Because the reality is your phone does amazing work and videos are much more about uh, the content of the video than the like the the way it looks. But to me, both are important. So uh, I do shoot and release in 4K with a Sony A7R2. My thought is, if there's going to be a 4K video about the iPod Mini on YouTube, it might as well be mine. <laughs> so um, uh, I do release in 4K. There are a couple of videos there where I shot in 4K but still released in 1080. But I've just bit the bullet and for future-proofing uh, and releasing in 4K. What's nice about 4K especially if you release in 1080, you have a lot more data than what you're showing. And so you can crop in and zoom in and don't you don't lose any quality. Um, but I release in, in full 4K. If you use Safari on the Mac, you can't see it. You got to go use Chrome. Uh, but it is there, I promise. Um, so like I said, I shoot with a Sony a7R2, which is a, a mirrorless camera. Uh, for the gear nerds out there, I use the Sony uh, F2.8 24 to 70 millimeter lens. It's a it's a lens that is wide enough, so my studio is not very big, and so like a I've got a fifty millimeter lens as well, but that's too punched in. Like it, it, the the studio is really small, and so I need a wide angle lens so I can be close to the camera. And uh, 
basically everything I shoot on YouTube is through that lens. Uh, it gives me the range that I need that works in the space that I have. Um, I got a bunch of tripods, a bunch of lights. None of that's particularly interesting. Uh, there's a link in the show notes, though, if you want detail on that. Uh, I, I keep a gear page up on my blog. You can go read through that. Um, I use the Rode video mic for audio. That's something I really struggled with, which is sort of ironic since what I do for a living is audio. But I really struggled with audio uh, in my early YouTube videos. And actually, Alex Cox, uh, a friend of ours, uh, recommended this microphone. It sits on top of the camera, plugs into the camera, and that's what I'm using now. And it sounds sounds really good. Um, so that, that's kind of all the gear. Uh, but I really want to talk about workflow, about how I go about actually making something. And this is what I found so interesting in talking to you about your iPod video a couple of weeks ago. Uh, was like how how you go from like an idea to actually making a thing. Um, and so for me, I keep a list of topics. It's probably two dozen videos long now of just things that maybe I've written about them or maybe I want to write about them too. Or maybe there's going to be like a joint thing where I have an article and a video as a package together. But sort of a list of things that I want to show. Um, again, the YouTube channel is mostly Apple history, although I have pretty recently started also trying like what if I did a video instead of a blog post? So I wrote this thing about the 2015 MacBook Pro being the MacBook Pro that I use, and I did I did that as a video instead of a, instead of a, a blog post. But I'll do my research. You know, once I have an idea selected, that in, includes watching old Apple events, reading old reviews, uh, looking through the Wayback Machine and finding like the original product pages, for, so like the iPod Mini, seeing how Apple marketed it, trying to understand the time frame it was in. And I sort of take all that information and end up writing a script. So uh, I write full scripts for the videos. Uh, this is hard because I want to get really down in the weeds in something. And I know that's not necessarily what the audience wants. And so I try to balance covering the high points and getting too far down uh, in the details. And, um, you know, I've got videos that have gone too far one way and other videos that have gone too far the other way. And that's always like a balancing act, but hopefully I'm... I'm getting them to where I want them to be in that script writing process. Uh, in that process, I will read the scripts out loud, uh, which is a tip I got from our friend CGP Gray. He does this, and it totally works. Um, trying to understand the way it's going to flow together. If there's any turns of phrase that I have, you know, I struggle to pronounce or have trouble saying or that sound awkward together. Um, and that'll be a couple of days kind of on and off of work. So right now I'm doing a video every uh, every other week. Uh, to a month, and um, beginning of the week is writing, research, and scripting, and then usually Wednesday or Thursday, I'll shoot it. So uh, how I generally do it is I'll shoot uh, sort of like all the headshot stuff, so like me looking into the camera, reading the script, or, you know, um, uh, performing the script. I don't I don't have a teleprompter. I memorize it. Um, I don't want a teleprompter because I don't want it to seem like I'm reading, and I can be more animated and like kind of I'll do each paragraph several times and usually like the last one I do is finally the one I'm happy with and as I do it I'm changing the script a little bit uh, kind of figuring out what works in the moment um, so I'll shoot the whole video to camera I know that I'm not going to be on screen the whole time but it gives me flexibility in the edit and it it ensures that the audio all sounds the same so if I were to just to shoot my to camera stuff with that microphone on the camera and then anything with B-roll, I sat down here at my podcast rig and recorded it. My voice would sound different. And, uh, I find that really distracting in videos that I watch on YouTube. I don't know if anyone else feels that way, but 
when it's clear someone did the audio in two different places, it really just, it gets to me. So I don't, I don't want that in my stuff. Um, so I edit all that together. I figure out what cut of the paragraph I want, which version uh, works the best. String all that together. I edit in Final Cut Pro 10 in 4K again. Um, and so I sort of lay out my timeline of this is the entire script with me looking at the camera lens. And then I work through on what B-rolls uh, shots I want. So in the iPod mini video you mentioned, uh, there's obviously a lot of shots of like the product uh, on my new overhead rig. Uh, you know, I know I wanted that sequence of me unboxing them all because they all came from eBay over the course of like a month. Uh, all that stuff, kind of figuring out where that goes. Very often I have an idea of that. In fact, when I write the script, I usually will make little notes of like, hey, while you're saying this, show B-roll of uh, you know, all five colors of the iPod mini or show the back of the iPod mini and then the front of another iPod, like kind of showing off what I'm talking about. So I'll go through and I'll shoot all of that and then I'll start laying that in over uh, myself speaking to the camera. What's nice about this is, A, no one wants to look at me for six minutes. Like, I want B-roll. People want to see the products. So getting as much of that in as possible um, and really only using the headshot stuff when I don't have anything to show. So if I'm talking about uh, sort of like a connecting piece from one idea to another, very often I'll be on camera. Or sort of at the end, like the call to action of like why this is really important, why I wanted to share this, uh, I find that more compelling if I'm on screen. But B-roll does a nice job, too, of hiding your edit points. So if I cut between you know two versions of the same paragraph and like I jump a little bit, right, because I'm looking to the left a little bit and then looking to the right, but there's the cut is in between, so I look like it's really jarring. Um, I, I can mask those. I can hide those with B-roll. So like if, if I do a nice pretty painting shot over a bunch of iPods, you don't know that the audio you're hearing is actually from two different cuts and they don't line up quite right visually. And so it's a nice way to like smooth that out. Sometimes that's, that's unavoidable. Sometimes you, you do see those jump cuts. I try not to use them, but, um, the B roll for me is really what is what makes the videos worth watching because I have all this stuff here in my collection and I want to show it off on the YouTube channel. And so filming what I'm talking about. So like the, uh, the iMac G4 video, which I think was last month talking about, Hey, you know, the neck moves up and down and side to side where I can explain that for 10 minutes or I can just show it, right? Like I can take four seconds and show the screen moving on its Chrome arm and then you get it. Then it's like, oh, right. I understand how this works because I've seen it. And so the B-roll is really powerful for that. And, um, and I try to only fall back to that sort of Stevens on the screen talking when it's absolutely, absolutely necessary. And, that's taken a long time to get to that recipe. I've been doing the channel for two years, and you if you watch them chronologically, there's a very clear evolution. And for a long time, every new video, I was trying one new thing. And that has sort of died off a little bit as I've gotten more comfortable with the format and as I've sort of gotten my equipment and sort of stuff you know, nailed down. The iPod Mini, like I said, showed this new overhead thing I built. But past that... Uh, now it's much more about like just honing the craft and uh, I want to be more ambitious with some of my shots. You can see some of that in some recent videos, hopefully. Um, but uh, it, it's been a, it's been a process of learning because when I started this, I didn't know anything about video editing at all. Like my early videos, even the, the tiny bit I know now make me cringe. 
but hopefully, you know, it will continue to improve in the future and, and I can live up to this amazing camera and live up to this gear I want to show off. And, uh, and I, I think people are enjoying it. It's been successful so far. So, yeah, it's a, it is a great show and I'm glad, I'm really glad that you kind of got into it and that it's something that you're continuing to pursue. Cause I, they, you know, there's a, there are a ton of YouTube shows all over the place, but what I really appreciate about yours is again, it's, uh, not only is it your voice, uh, which I think is really special, but you're also doing topics that, uh, you know, Marcus Brownlee is not going to randomly be like, you know what I really <laughs> want to cover the 2008 iMac. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely lots of, I mean, YouTube is so big, like I, you can't think of anybody as your competition because it's just impossible. There are definitely other channels doing vintage Apple stuff. And a lot of them are good. I subscribe to a bunch of them. Uh, there's some really interesting people in the like Commodore space, like the another computer brand that's uh, no longer around. But their vintage community is really strong, probably stronger than the Apple vintage community, honestly. And there's some people in that world doing amazing stuff, amazing content. So for me, it's like YouTube is so big. Uh, all I can focus on is what I want to do and what my audience wants to see. And, uh, so far that's been, been really successful. You know, sometimes, um, I'll do a video, like I did one on this alpha smart, like smart keyboard thing. And it did no views, like very clearly no one really cared about it, but it's something that I wanted to do because I find it a fascinating device and sort of like selfishly. There's very little about that on YouTube. And so I kind of want to have like the definitive piece. If you're interested in this device and you want to watch a video on it, I want the best one. And that doesn't make any sense from a business perspective because it's done less than 10,000 views, like nothing. But it's uh, it's something I'm proud of. And I have the flexibility in the way that my work is set up to like, I can have a like YouTube makes a little money for me, but it's not, it's probably not even worth the time I put in it, honestly. Uh, for me, it's like a creative output and sort of expanding the reach of the 512 brand more than like actual revenue. And so it lets me experiment. And, uh, you know, for the first year, I sort of labeled the YouTube channel like publicly as an experiment. And now this year it's, I want to do two a month, no matter what, like I want to see if I can really make these on a regular basis. And part of that for me, and we talked about this in your iPad video is how much time these things take. Like you can spend, I'm, I'm a, I'm a one man band. Like I'm shooting, I'm writing, I'm editing, shooting yourself on, on film is extremely difficult. Like I've had to learn how to, how to buy equipment so I could see myself and, and do focus remotely. And like, that's uh, yeah. And like you shoot a bunch of stuff and like, Oh, I'm a lot of focus. Great. I'll just, you know, talk to the camera for another 20 minutes. Um, getting through all that's been a process, but, uh, the idea of doing it on a regular basis now, part of that is, it's like, it's like a chicken and egg of like, I can only do that if I'm faster and I can only get faster if I do more of them. And so this year is like systematizing the video creation. Like I've done that in podcasting. Like I know there are people who look at the output I do podcasting and have no idea how I do it. It's like, it's taken years to get really good at it. Like it's not a big deal to like prep, record and edit a show in a day or two now. Whereas five years ago, that would have, um, that would have been really difficult. So it just takes time. But yeah, if you're interested in, in doing YouTube videos, like don't feel intimidated by anything else that out there on the market. Um, look to it, be inspired by it, you know, but like go do your own thing and do it with the phone in your pocket. And, you know, you, you can totally do it. You don't need a fancy studio full of stuff. 
Although toys are fun. <laughs> I won't lie, right? Like I can't. <laughs> toys are really fun and it does really help, but you can do a lot with a little, you know. Totally. I I film all of my roller derby videos just with my iPhone and occasionally with a stabilizer, but that's it. This episode of Query is brought to you by our friends at Hover. Building your online identity has never been more important. With Hover, you find the domain that shows the world who you are and what you're passionate about. Uh, for me, the domain at Hover that does this for me is, we just talked about it, is 512pixels.net. I've had that website coming up on 10 years, and uh, the domain has been at Hover for a really long time. And uh, anytime I get that email saying it's time to renew, uh, I, I view it as like a just a, like a little celebration of how long that has been, that project has been in my life. Uh, what's good about Hover 2, though, it's not just for stuff you've had for 10 years. If you got a new idea, finding a name is super difficult, and so much of that is dependent on the domain name, right? If, if you have this great idea, but you can't get the domain name, maybe that, maybe that's an issue. And so Hover has a really great tool for searching. You can search by keyword if you have an idea for a whole domain. Uh, it services all the all the top-level domains now, so maybe you're just thinking about a .com or .net or .org, but maybe uh, Hover can surface something for you that makes a lot of sense, and, and you see your idea, and you can run with it. They make that really easy, easier than other domain registrars I've used in the past. And if you have a question, their customer support team is just simply incredible. It, they're real humans. They know what they're doing. They know how DNS works. Uh, it's super, super great. So if you want to show the world what you're passionate about, or you want to show the world what you've been passionate about for 10 years, Hover is there to help you make that first step. Head over to hover.com slash query now, and you get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you to Hover for their support of this show and Relay FM. Steven, I have the first question for you. It's from Jordan. They write, can you help me decide between Carbon Copy Cloner and Chronosync. I hear many podcasters use both, but it seems that Chronosync does everything and more than Carbon Copy Cloner. Do either of you use either of these? Um, I actually don't. I use uh, SuperDuper. So I'm going to let you okay. take this, Steven. Uh, so I use Carbon Copy Cloner to do offsite backups of all the Macs, you know, my Macs, my wife's Mac, uh, the Drobo. And uh, I've used it for a really long time. It does bootable backups. You can copy folders. So like my Drobo, I don't know, I have like eight terabytes of data, nine terabytes of data. So that's split between a couple of external hard drives. And I have jobs set up in Carbon Copy Clone to do all of that. Uh, honestly, I'm not super familiar with Chronosync. So I took to Twitter yesterday and asked um, uh, followers, you know, what they thought about it. And it, it seems like, Jordan, you're right, that Chronosync does basically what Carbon Copy Cloner does, but then has a set of features kind of beyond that. So you can tell Chronosync, for instance, hey, back up this folder to my uh, my Synology or something, which Carbon Copy Cloner can do. But then you can also tell Chronosync, also back it up to Amazon S3 or Backblaze B2, uh, where Carbon Copy Cloner doesn't do that. It just deals with like disks and disk images and sort of that realm of things, where Chronosync can also bring in those uh, those web storage uh, solutions. And so uh, if that's really what you're looking for, I would say Chronosync is definitely worth a look. Uh, it seems like a lot of people use it in uh, photography. Like it just seems to have, I think because you can copy a folder to a bunch of different places, uh, that's important to people, you know, shooting weddings, right? Like you don't want to lose those images. Um, 
Uh, so you probably can't go wrong either way. Honestly, I think they're probably both good solutions. If you don't need the cloud stuff, I can vouch for Carbon Copy Cloner because I've used it a really long time. Uh, Super Duper, which you mentioned, uh, Serenity, is also a good option for this. Um, Carbon Copy Cloner seems to have stayed a little more on top of updates than Super Duper, but I haven't kept up with Super Duper in several years. So that may be unfair. Um, but honestly, I don't think you can go wrong with any of them. I think maybe look and see what your needs are. Um, look at pricing and see what makes sense. Um and uh, I think, honestly, as long as you're backing up your stuff somewhere, that it, it makes me happy. So just back up your stuff and you'll be set. All right. So we got a question about Apple Watch uh, workout calorie counting, which I found really interesting. So Ben writes, is there a difference uh, between the various watch workout types in the way that calories are calculated? Am I better served over using one over the other or differences sort of mainly the options for counting circuits, laps, et cetera? All right. I love this question uh, because it gets into the nitty gritty and I'm fascinated by the nitty gritty. Uh, so essentially, uh, the different workout types were created, um, as we can understand, by Apple pretty much a- actively testing people in a variety of ages, uh, ethnicities in those situations in their labs. Uh, so they would have, you know, pretty advanced sensor equipment on everybody and trying to see like, what's a baseline? How many calories are at- on average burned by a woman who's in their 20s who are doing it this? What about a woman in their 30s? What about an old man in their 70s? Um, and trying to find general baselines um, for basically, okay, your heart rate is at this level. I'm therefore going to assign you this many calories burned. Um, it's also how frequently your heart, uh, you're, you're reading your heart rate. Um, so for instance, you know, if you're, if you're biking, um, it may not need to flash and check your heart rate quite as often as if you're doing high intensity exercise where, you know, a five, 10 second period can dramatically change your heart rate uh, based on what you're doing. Uh, so the two the two things that Ben highlighted in, his, in their comment was uh, high intensity uh, interval training, HIIT, um, and cross training, uh, which was also mentioned in the tweet. One of these is an officially supported exercise type from Apple, which means it went through that whole, you know, secret secret slash not so secret testing lab uh, to try and figure all of that out. The other falls under um, what Apple calls their quote unquote other workout types, uh, which is here are all of the workout types that are cataloged by the health app, but we don't actually have data on our side behind them. So we can't develop specialized metrics for for all of these. Uh, That includes things like yoga, that includes things like skating sports, cross training. Um, There's a a whole uh, archery, badminton. Um, If you've ever seen sort of those those named workouts uh, in the health app of like different sport types, that's where all of that falls down, falls into. Um, So the way that those get calculated, I find really interesting. the other categories, uh, every full minute of movement. So if you are moving for 60 seconds, that equals or exceeds the intensity for you of a brisk walk counts towards your exercise and move goals. Um, and that's essentially the same uh, metric that Apple Watch uses when you're not doing a workout. Um, so if you're just walking around, that's how Apple Watch uh, figures out your exercise and move goals regularly. But when you are working out, uh, it just flashes your wrist much more uh, much more responsibly. I can't find the documentation anymore, um, but at one point, I seem to remember Apple saying that 
if you're um, if you're not running an exercise workout, the heart rate w- the heart rate sensor was reading your pulse every minute. If you are running the workout sensor on another workout, the heart rate sensor is reading your your pulse every ten seconds. As I said, I can't find the documentation any longer, uh, so that's just going off of my memory of this. So that may be slightly incorrect. Uh, if we have any Apple engineers listening to the podcast who want to correct on background, let me know. Uh, but uh, I, in either case, uh, the reason why you would start a workout as opposed to just kind of letting it ride is because your heart rate is going to be read more frequently. So it can try and give you a little bit more accurate data uh, and give you kind of an accurate calorie burn. Um, Outside of those other workouts, each of the other, each of the uh, specialized workouts that Apple has tested all have different specialized metrics uh, and different heart rate readings. So if you're, again, if you're uh, doing high intensity interval training, uh, you're going to get a different reading than if you set it to outdoor walk. Uh, In addition, uh, you mentioned counting circuits and laps. Uh, A lot of these specialized uh, programs that Apple has built, uh, those include things like, for instance, if you're swimming, it has stroke type and lap type or if you're doing an outdoor cycle it slightly adjusts the how it's reading the accelerometer uh, so it can figure and the gps so it can figure out the distance that you're riding on your bike Um, and if you do have gps you can also get a map from your from your bike ride or from your outdoor walk or things like that indoor walks it doesn't fire up that gps sensor because it says well if you're indoors chances are you're running on a treadmill and you don't need a, a specialized map Uh, All of these things kind of take into account. Uh, In general, I would recommend if there is a specialized workout type available for the workout you want to do, always select that over an other named workout. Um, And honestly, uh, when it comes to like HIIT or cross training, which one to choose, I would honestly only choose high intensity interval training if you are doing high intensity interval training because it's so that version of the the workout is so tweaky and so designed to rapid jumps in heart rate. Um, if you're doing like a two hour cross training session, you might get way over the predicted calories that you're expected to burn <laughs> because it because it will treat any heart rate jump as, oh, they're doing like this crazy amount of exercise that's really affecting their heart. Uh, so really, you know, try and try and be accurate with your uh, with your choices. Uh, make good choices. Um, and hopefully Apple will add some new specialized workout types at WWDC. I'm crossing my fingers. I would really like skating sports, Apple. Yeah. I mean, I feel like every version of watchOS, they are adding new workouts. So I, I yeah. would, I would, I would say that's probably a safe bet that new things will be, will be coming online. It's funny. I always use that other one when I, when I mow in the yard, I got a push mower, right? And it's just like, it's brutal. And like, it's not really an outdoor walk. And so I've started using the other one, uh, and it's it's sort of funny. I think I'm working probably harder than I am, but uh, but it's there to sort of a catch all. Yeah, one last question for you. Uh, Nathan asks on uh, an iPhone that has a home button, you can press home while on a call to go to another part of the phone. But how do you do this on iPhone 10, iPhone X? <laughs> uh, so. Uh, the iPhone 10 has a bunch of gestures uh, to go home. So if you're in any app to get back to the home screen, you swipe up from the bottom. Uh, you can swipe up and hold, and you end up in the app switcher. You can swipe down from the top and get notifications and control center. 
Um, so it's just it's just the same as going home in any other app. Um, we should note that not all carriers around the world offer data and phone at the same time. So if you're doing this to like you're on the phone on cellular and you want to go look at something in Google Maps, not all carriers offer that uh, still, which is kind of a bummer. But um, that's how you do it. Just like going home in in, uh, in any other app, just to swipe up from the bottom. You know, it's funny, the, the iPhone X's been out now, I guess, what, since November? So we're coming up on, you know, six months or so. And for me, this has all totally been ingrained. You know, I, I pick up an older iPhone. My wife has an iPhone SE. And I pick it up, I'm like, uh, man, this button feels old-fashioned. <laughs> like, it just, it takes, takes so, it took six months, you know, to totally break a decade's worth of muscle memory. Uh, but once you're used to it, it's... um. It's a pretty quick way of getting around. I still think there's some things they can improve. Control center's in the wrong place. But uh, that swipe up, uh, even the swipe up and pause to get to, to multitasking um, has come come in handy. Uh, another one, too, uh, just real quickly, kind of a, a fun one. If you just want to switch between the most you know, recent couple of apps, you can swipe horizontally across the very bottom of the screen. So, for instance, I'll use this sometimes. If I'm saying I'm entering something in my calendar from an iMessage or something, you know, or like I'm look, I'm referencing some piece of data to enter a piece of data in another app, you can swipe uh, right and left across that uh, home indicator at the very bottom of the screen, and those order those apps will stay in order uh, until you interact with one, and then it becomes the newest, which takes some getting used to. But uh, it's uh, it's a very fast because you don't have to swipe up and pause for the app switcher, it's just like back and forth real quick. Uh, like really fast command tab uh, on the Mac or on the iPad. It's just instant. So that's that's a good one too. Yeah, you know, I knew that this existed and I just hadn't really integrated it into my vocabulary. Like I was still, I was swiping up and over kind of thing where I was just like doing like a little bit of a hop. Uh, and I, I feel like Dan Frakes from The Wirecutter mentioned it the other day as just kind of like a, hey, this, you know, FYI, if people don't know about it, this this gesture saves lives. Uh, and I started intentionally kind of using it, and now I am so addicted to swiping si- like horizontally. Uh, I I don't know why I blew it off the first couple months, but uh, but now I'm regretting all of those months of lost productivity. <laughs> well, it's the future, so now you're set for the next ten years, right? Exactly. <laughs> We're not going back to the home button. Thank you, Stephen. That was fun. Uh, thank yeah. you listeners for fun that was fun yeah so if you want to learn more about what we talked about uh you can do so over on the website relay.fm slash query slash 31 you can get in touch with us there uh as well but of course you can submit questions uh with a tweet using the hashtag ask query in the meantime you can find serenity on twitter at saturn s-e-t-t-e-r-n and you can find her writing over at imore.com i'm ismh on twitter and write at 512pixels.net And until our next episode, Serenity, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios.